Good morning. It's my privilege to read scripture this morning. Today's reading is from 1 John 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was the Father was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Bob, for reading that for us today. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Thanks so much for being with us today at Disciples Church. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are so glad to have you with us today. If you're not already there, please turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. I am in the sunlight today, and usually I'm used to seeing you guys fighting the glare, so we'll see how this works out. Uh, but it is, uh, it is so good to see you and, and welcome this morning. A couple of summers ago, uh, my wife and I were looking for an opportunity to get our boys into sports for the first time. It was going to be our first foray into organized sports, and so it was an exciting time in the Mosier household. Uh, we, were, we were looking for something that was close and something that would get them used to the idea of team sports and all those kinds of things. And so we found T-ball through our, our local um, rec department. I'd gotten an email after we registered them saying that they were looking for parents to kind of help organize and supervise and all those kinds of things. And I thought, well, I can do that uh, a couple of times a week. That's no problem. So I went to the meeting where they explained um, what it is that, uh, th that would be going on. And the way that they kept talking about it, almost, they were acting almost as if I was going to be coaching rather than helping supervise. But I didn't think anything of it because the email had specifically said, organize and supervise. All right, so I showed up at the first meeting and the representative from the rec department wasn't there that day and so the organizer of the whole event came up to me and said, hey, your rec department isn't working here today, uh, isn't here today, so you'll be coaching the team. Now I grew up not having played organized baseball. I certainly played baseball in the neighborhood, but never had played anything organized before. Uh, and so admittedly, this is t-ball. It's fairly low pressure. The stakes aren't all that high, but the one thing that was in my head is I don't want to be the guy that instills bad habits into these kids from the very beginning. So we're just going to keep it simple. We're going to start with the fundamentals. We're going to do all of those things. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to corral 15 to 20 kids who are armed with baseball bats, but it is even harder than it sounds because the first thing you have to teach them is, is that these bats are only to be used when they're batting and only to be directed at a ball instead of being used as a sword fight or swinging it at somebody else's head. I mean, these are metal bats, right? You're having to have that explanation. And then we started with the basic things, your stance in the field and where you're positioned and, and the fact that you use the glove to catch the ball, not to throw the ball. That was a big one. It was a big hurdle that we had to move past. Running the bases was, was one that was really challenging for us. You start with first base, not with third. That was a big challenge. And by the end of the season, we we had kind of, kind of worked through uh, most of those issues. They learned, maybe most importantly, especially at this age, how to hit the ball off of a tee so that they could work on how to properly swing, a, a skill that will serve them well for many years to come, pre presuming they stick, stick with it. But what I didn't do that day was to get up at the pitcher's mound and start throwing curveballs. And not only because I don't know how to properly throw a curveball, 
but also because it would have been of very limited use to them. They weren't ready for it. When you, when you start something new, you start at the beginning. Well, today, we're beginning this series looking at the letters of the Apostle John to a church that is struggling. And throughout this letter, John addresses these Christians gathered in these churches throughout Asia Minor. He addresses them as little children. He takes this very sort of fatherly approach to them. This is later on in John's ministry. He's been around for a while. He's got some years of experience. And so he speaks to them as little children. They're spiritual beginners. But by virtue of their church experience, they had been, a thro- they had been thrown a curveball that they were not expecting. They were expecting to come up to the plate and hit off the tee. And now here's this curveball coming and they don't even know where to start. And John is the perfect coach to watch, walk them through this. John himself is known as the beloved disciple. He describes himself in the Gospel of John as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And love certainly marks this letter. You can see it in both the approach of the Apostle John as he writes it, as well as the subject matter that John addresses all throughout this writing. One pastor referred to this letter as a spiral of love. The idea being that no matter what it is that John's going to address throughout the course of this letter, and no matter what he's going to talk about, even some very deep doctrinal issues, he always comes back around again to the idea of love. It is the marker, the defining marker of the believer. And so part of what makes this letter interesting to us, especially if you've ever taken the time to read the Gospel of John written by the same author, is to compare and contrast the differences between these two letters. The Gospel of John had been written primarily to religious Jews. These are people who who had all kinds of familiarity with with the Old Testament scriptures. They had all sorts of familiarity with temple worship, the understanding of who God is. And John in that Gospel was writing to them to convince them that Jesus was in fact the Messiah that they were expecting. But this letter, in the words of one author, is written to a whole different group of people and the point of this letter is to convince them that the Messiah was Jesus. Now there's a very subtle but significant difference in those explanations. These people were people who had no exposure or experience of God. In our modern parlance, they might have been considered nuns, N-O-N-E-S, right? No religious affiliation, no religious background, no spiritual understanding, no concept of who Jesus is or who the God of the Bible is or any of the Old Testament writings, but what they experienced and what they discovered in the simple and yet profound gospel of grace that John preached to them was a forgiveness and a freedom and a hope and a joy that they had never experienced before. They have an understanding of the person of Jesus, a demonstration of his grace towards them, his pursuit of them, and they had seen that personified in the person of John. Here is John, a minister primarily to the Jews who cared enough for them to reach out to Gentiles, to share the gospel with them, to preach the good news of Jesus' love to people who had never before heard it. And these people, upon hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, upon hearing about his grace and his goodness, they embraced that gospel full-throatedly. John leaves. These people continue in their church ministry 
And the lesson that we remember is that whenever there is a seedling of the gospel beginning to sprout, Satan wastes no time in trying to root it out. Because as this fledgling body full of young Christians, spiritual infants, was working through the normal growing pains that all churches go through, it was infiltrated. Infiltrated by false teachers known as the Gnostics. Now, if you're familiar with Gnosticism as a philosophy, you may immediately have an understanding of what that word means. Gnosticism literally comes from the, from the, the root word gnosis. It's where we get our word knowledge. And it's the idea that there, is an, that there is a spiritual knowledge that can be imparted to people that gives them a deeper level of understanding, takes them to a higher plane of existence, gives them an insight that nobody else has. And what you have being addressed in this particular book are the very, very early roots of Gnosticism. It is not yet in its fully formed philosophy, but the early roots of Gnosticism are here. These early Gnostics, however, claimed to be Christians. They claimed to follow Jesus Christ. They even believed in the historical Jesus, but they held to at least two specific beliefs that directly conflicted with the gospel. And these are the two primary things with which John is going to concern himself in the writing of this letter. First, they did not believe that Jesus was inherently divine. In the Apostles' Creed that we recited together this morning, one of the things that we stated is, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, that he suffered, that he was crucified, that he died, that he rose again. We said all of those things in this creed that believers have been saying for millennia. But these Gnostic Christians, and I'm using that term Christian loosely in this context, they claimed Christianity but clearly were not Christians. These Gnostic Christians denied those basic fundamental elements of the Christian faith. Irenaeus, one of the church fathers, wrote in the second century to describe what these Gnostics believed about Jesus. And I want you to listen because this is going to inform the whole rest of the letter that's in front of us. Here's what Irenaeus wrote. He said, the Gnostics represented Jesus as having not been born of a virgin, but as being the son of Joseph and Mary, who was more righteous, prudent, and wise than other men. After his baptism, Christ, that is the Messiah God, they are not talking about Jesus here, but a separate spiritual entity named Christ. Christ, the Messiah God, descended upon Jesus in the form of a dove from the supreme ruler, and then he proclaimed the unknown father and performed miracles. But at last, the Christ, the spiritual Messiah, departed from Jesus, and that then Jesus suffered and rose again, while Christ remained impassable, in other words, incapable of suffering or feeling pain inasmuch as he was a spiritual being. Now, if you followed all that, good for you. I had to read it two or three times to understand it, but here's the basic gist of what they were saying. They were saying there is a Jesus and there is a Messiah, but these are not the same entity. They're saying Jesus was a very good man, a righteous man, a wise man, wiser and more righteous than anybody else who was living. And because of that, God showed favor to this particular man and sent the spirit of Messiah onto Jesus through which he could perform miracles and teach and do all of the amazing things that Jesus did. But importantly, in the Gnostic philosophy, that spirit Messiah left Jesus prior to his suffering and his death 
because the Gnostics could not imagine a spiritual being, a thoroughly spiritual being like this Messiah that they described, which is not the Messiah of the Bible, actually experiencing suffering or pain. Everything for the Gnostics was about their earthly pleasure. Following me so far? If not, you can listen back to this. I get that it's a little bit heavy, but we need to know where we're going here. They believed that Jesus and the Christ were these two distinct entities. They did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed that Jesus had the Messiah. Do you see the distinction? They believed in a historical Jesus, but they denied that Christ, a member of the Godhead, had ever actually become a man in the person of Jesus. As one, one scholar stated, when John's opponents did, what John, John's opponents denied was not the messiahship, but rather the incarnation of Jesus. This heretical teaching is either a denial that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh or a denial that Jesus is Christ come in the flesh. So their understanding of who Jesus is as the Messiah is completely flawed. They have stripped the divinity and the deity of Jesus away from him. They have assigned it to a separate spiritual being and they have made Jesus nothing more than a good and righteous man. But second, they believed that the only thing that matters is what happens with the spirit. And what you do with your physical body is immaterial to your spiritual life. F.F. Bruce writing on this, described it this way. He said, these new teachers claimed to have reached such an advanced stage in spiritual experience that they were beyond good and evil. They maintained that they had no sin, not in the sense that they had attained moral perfection, but in the sense that what might be sin for people at a less mature stage of development was no longer a sin for the completely spiritual person. For them, ethical distinctions had ceased to be relevant. In other words, these Gnostics believed that their own spiritual transcendence, their own spiritual knowledge, the head knowledge that they had gained for themselves, had somehow allowed them to transcend all standards of moral behavior. That they could participate in all kinds of immorality and it have nothing to do with who they were spiritually. In other words, they had divorced their body from their spirit. And in doing so, they denied the very creation of who we are in God. That we are made as holistic beings, body, mind, and spirit all in one. And you can imagine the sort of spiritual immorality and the behavioral immorality that this belief system brought about. So John sends this letter to correct these false beliefs, to help these wavering new Christians remember the gospel and to condemn the teachings of those who would detract from the gospel and lead these impressionable Christians away from it. Well, many of these false teachers, upon hearing from John, they leave the church and they say, you guys believe whatever you want. We know the truth. We have this transcendent knowledge that God has given us something different that allows us, by the way, to do whatever it is we feel like doing with no accountability and no structure. And we're going to leave your church and we're going to go do our own thing. And so these Christians are are rocked by the experience they've just had. What are we supposed to believe? Where are we supposed to go? Do they really have the truth? Do we have the truth? And John's message to them is so urgent that he doesn't even bother introducing himself in this text. This is one of two books in the whole New Testament that is not introduced by its author. He just jumps into the conversation and he starts in the beginning. Look what he says. 
1 John chapter 1, verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. Now remember the charge that he's making. These people claimed that the spiritual Messiah had nothing to do with the person of Jesus. But John here is saying, no, 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 this Messiah is one that we've seen. We've talked with him. We've touched him. And so John is saying here, what I'm about to share is in this entire letter is not new or different. This is the same and only Jesus and the same and only gospel that has always been. It's the same thing that I witnessed and the same thing that I told you about. And can you think of any better starting point for the moments in which someone is so twisted up in their faith? See, the tendency of people who've been around the church for any length of time, especially people who love the particularities of theology, they love the debates, they love the arguments, they love the finer points of theology, their tendency in those moments is to get involved in what a professor of mine called dining hall debates. And he called them dining hall debates because when you're an undergrad theology student, you're exposed to all of these new ideas and all of these teachings and all of these philosophies and you're, ex- you're exposed to all of these age-old questions and conversations. And so you leave your theology class and you go to the dining hall and you debate with each other about these things that ultimately have little to no importance to your actual spiritual life. They're so unimportant that they're not even secondary issues. They tend to be tertiary issues. And while it might be fun to discuss those things, it is almost always useless. And that is, to an extent, what the Gnostics had done with their theology. They denied the fundamentals of the faith. They denied the essential nature of Christianity and claimed instead a special knowledge, a divine, nearly unattainable wisdom that only they were privy to, that no one was allowed to check them on. Knowledge to which nobody could hold up a Bible and challenge them because they claimed that what they had experienced and learned superseded the writings of Scripture. And, by the way, that these things that they had been given just so happened to grant them permission to do all of the things that they wanted to do anyway, in the name of God. They were, in the truest sense, using the name of the Lord in vain. They were ascribing something to God that had nothing to do with him. And in their pursuit of their own Gnostic ideals, they had twisted up the beliefs and the consciences of these young Christians. But what John understood is that he did not first need to engage with the obscure arguments of the Gnostics, though he would ultimately go after their teachings, but he needed to remind these young Christians where they were to start. And notice where he starts. Second half of verse 1. Concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. Now we need to consider what John means when he uses this phrase, word of life. Because if you're familiar with the gospel of John, you may remember John chapter 1, verse 1, which says, in the beginning was, was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And if you read the remainder of that text, what you discover is that John's writing in his gospel, his use of that word specifically references Jesus. 
But in this context, especially where he begins to address in verse 2, I think he's actually reading this as a reference to the word of the gospel, much in the same way that Peter did in his sermon in Acts chapter 15 when he said, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by the mouth of the Gentiles you should hear the word of the gospel and believe. But regardless of which of those two interpretations was intended, the application is essentially the same. And hear this if you hear nothing else. The power of the gospel has been revealed and applied to the life of the Christian in Christ Jesus. The power of the gospel has been revealed and applied to the life of the Christian in Christ Jesus Paul unpacks this idea beautifully in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, when he says this, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, that is Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. In other words, says Paul, in the virgin birth, God himself was made visible in the flesh. In Jesus' baptism, his deity is confirmed. We see the dove of the Holy Spirit depend on him. We hear the voice of the Father say, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. In Jesus' words, we hear his explicit claims to being God. I and the Father are one. In Jesus' miracles, his deity was put on display. Who else other than God can turn water into wine? Can take someone who has a deathly diagnosis and give them healing? Can take somebody who has passed on and bring them back to life? And likewise, in Jesus' life, we observed, indicates John, his humanity. most of us tend to ebb one way or another in our spiritual walk. We either have incredible comfort with the idea of Jesus as man and kind of forget his deity, for we forget that he's God, or we're very comfortable with the notion that Jesus is God, but we like to forget that he's man. And the error of one, if you view Jesus as just a man, is that you will view his life as only something to be modeled, only something to model your own life after. We see Jesus doing good works. We see him being kind to the poor. We see him caring for those who are hurting. And so we look at Jesus the same way we would look at a social worker. I want to be like Jesus because he did good things and he cared about people and he made a difference in the world. And your tendency, if you view Jesus as God, but forget that he is a man, is you will view him as a stoic, far-off, distant, uncaring figure. You'll see his holiness and you'll see his perfection. You'll see that he's different. You'll see everything about him, but you'll forget that at the core of who he is and was, he is also 100% man, which means that he ate and he drank and he laughed with his friends and he wept with the hurting and he grew angry when he saw people mistreated and he grew tired at the end of a long day, and he showed compassion, and most strikingly, he suffered and he died. And for these Gnostics who claimed that the physical didn't matter but only the spiritual, they could not account 
for the suffering, the humanity of Jesus Christ. They could not account for both the deity, the godness of Jesus, and the humanity of the Christ. So they just denied his humanity. It's a simple solution. We'll just ignore all the evidence about who Jesus says he is and what we've seen of him, and we'll just make up a new Jesus. We'll make up a Jesus that fits what we want him to be. What matters according to John, is not just the spirit, but the body and the spirit. And so John begins by reminding the people, no, I witnessed all of this. I witnessed the deity. I witnessed the humanity. In the words of John Stott, the proclamation of the gospel is the historical manifestation of the eternal. That's another quote I had to read about five times this week before I began to grasp it. The proclamation of the gospel, when you stand up and declare the gospel to people, that there is an actual Jesus who is actually God, who is pre-existent with the Father. In other words, before time itself began, God existed in these three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and for all eternity past and for all eternity future, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have been in communion, perfect, unbroken communion with one another except for one specific moment in time. And that moment is at the cross when Jesus Christ took our sins upon his body, when he suffered brutally at the hands of the very people he came to save, and when God the Father in that moment turned his back on his own son because my sin was on him. My sin and your sin is the only thing in the history of eternity to break the otherwise unbroken communion between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When we proclaim the gospel, says Stott, there is a historical manifestation of the eternal. What is eternal becomes apparent. It becomes visible. In other words, this gospel, as profound and simple as it is, is also an inexhaustible ocean. Because in Jesus, the eternal, what we could not comprehend and what we could not understand and what we couldn't put a finger on was made visible, eye to eye, face to face, hand to hand with Jesus. In other words, if you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. If you struggle with the idea of a God who can at one time be holy and loving, care about perfect justice and provide grace, be all-powerful and yet suffer brutally. All you need to do is look at Jesus. In Jesus, you can see the power of God as he casts out demons and restores sight to the blind. In Jesus, you can see the love of God as he weeps over Lazarus and embraces the little children. In Jesus, you can see the holiness of God as he resists the devil and lives a perfect life. In Jesus, you can see the gentleness of God as he cares for the woman at the well and the woman caught in adultery. In Jesus, the eternal God is made visible. And John says, I witnessed this incarnation, this this occurrence of God becoming flesh. I walked with him. 
I witnessed his glory at the Mount of Transfiguration. I saw him bleed and die. I wept over him at the tomb. And I saw him resurrected. And he alone is the means of eternal life. Not some special knowledge. Not something you can learn from some other divine being. Or that given enough study and academic pursuit you can gain for yourself only in the simplicity and the profundity of who Christ is can salvation be found. Verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, listen to this because it's important though we take it for granted, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, what John is saying is because we had this experience with Jesus, because we got to witness him, we're now sharing it with you so that you can have that fellowship with God as well. And this, again, is in stark contrast to the Gnostics. Because the Gnostic tendency was to lord their supposed spiritual supremacy over the heads of those who were lesser than. We have a knowledge you haven't even understood yet. We have a knowledge that was given to us from above. We have a knowledge that can't be found in your simple Bible. We have a knowledge that can't be understood by simply seeing Jesus Christ. If only you understood things the way that we do, you would, be, you would be able to enjoy all the blessings that we're able to enjoy. But they held that knowledge as something secret and sacred for themselves. Now, if anyone had a reason to boast, it was John. He actually knew and walked with Jesus. He had written one of the four Gospels. He had actually received spiritual understanding and a special revelation from God that is recorded for us in the Word. And he is the one whom Jesus Christ called my beloved disciple. But what John understood is is that a true and meaningful encounter with Jesus does not lead us to pride and hoarding, but it leads us to humility and sharing. One of the ways you can know if you actually know Jesus Christ, one of, one of any number of indicators, is do you have a desire to see other people in your life whom you know and love actually come to know him? Does it actually concern you that those who are around you who don't know Jesus and whom you love and have an affection for, does it actually concern you that they don't know him? Do you want to see them know Jesus? Because the natural product of experiencing the love and presence of Christ is to share that love and that presence of Christ with others. And don't get me wrong, what I'm saying here is not that if you're shy, you'll no longer be shy about sharing faith. I'm not saying that all of a sudden your whole personality and who you are shifts overnight, but what I am saying is that at its very root, when you experience the love of Christ, it begins to bear itself out in your life towards others. I want others to know the peace that I've been given. I want others to experience the love that I've experienced. I want others to be, to be gripped and grasped by the forgiveness and the grace that has gripped and grasped my life. 
And so John's words in verse 3 show that the attitude of the Gnostics was actually counter to the nature of Christ. Do you remember what Jesus said in the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, beginning in verse 20, the latter half of that verse, Jesus says this in his prayer, his conversation with the Father. He says, I ask for those who will believe in me. By the way, that includes you and me if you're in this room and know Jesus Christ. He says, I ask for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. In other words, the natural outworking of the gospel in your life is that when people see you interacting and loving and caring for other believers with whom you otherwise would have no connection and no concern and no compassion and no affection and no common ground, when the world sees that sort of love between brothers and sisters, it brings about a realization that love is rooted somewhere far, far deeper than mere commonality. And he says, I want my people to be so marked by their unity and their love for one another that inevitably as the world observes it, their eyes are driven up to the Father. That they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one even as we are one, I and them, and you, Father, in me, Jesus, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. That you today, if you know Jesus Christ, God the Father has the exact love for you that he did for his own son. Now I know many of you in this room, if not most or all of you, and I would say that I love you. But if you asked me if I loved you the same way that I love my son, I'd probably have a hard time with that. But thank God he's not like me. That his love is so superior and so transcendent that his love for you as one who's been saved by his grace is the same as his love for his own son. And as if that wasn't enough, says Jesus himself from his own words, he says, the glory that was given to him is now given to you. an absolute confidence that you are part of the family of God, that your destiny is with Christ, that your worth is far beyond anything in which you might try to find your worth in this world. And John is displaying the truth by using the salvation that these people had received through Jesus the Son to show that they now had fellowship with the Father and with one another. So let's put that in contrast. If I already have the perfect love of the Father on my life, perfect acceptance in his sight, inestimable grace given to me, and the glory of God put upon my life, then what can these Gnostics possibly give me that's better than that? And all of this, says John, leads to something even more incredible. 
all of these first four verses, this very long sentence that just continues to build, culminates with this statement, and this is going to be the whole arc of the book. He says this, and we are writing, verse 4, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The Gnostics were claiming that these basic Christians were missing out. They claimed that they were missing out spiritually by lacking this extra wisdom. They claimed that they were missing out physically because they were being deprived of the joys of the flesh, particularly the immoral behavior that had marked the Gnostics by their insistence that what you do with your body matters. But if you carry the thought from verse 1 into verse 4, what John is saying in this bookend is this, that which was from the beginning, verse 1, leads to our joy being complete. Verse 4. The very gospel of Jesus Christ that began a good work in you will be brought to completion, is how it's stated elsewhere. In other words, says John, you basic Christian are lacking nothing. bask in how basic your faith is. Revel in the simplicity of the gospel. Marvel at the grace that has been given to such simple people like us. You are lacking nothing, says John. You have everything you need And further, Jesus didn't come to partially complete the work. He didn't leave you lacking. He didn't bring you halfway and leave you to figure out the rest. He didn't bring you to salvation and then tell you, figure out the right way to live or find your own joy. No, what he says is the very reason he came, how this all began from the very beginning, was to lead us to our joy being complete. What he accomplished was to ensure that your joy would be complete. And it brings to mind what Peter wrote in his second epistle, chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things. How many things? All things. What's left out of that? Nothing. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Everything you need for eternal life, for identity in Christ, for joy in the here and now has been given to you already through Jesus. Joy because the message of the gospel has been brought to us as lonely sinners. Joy because your life, no matter how messed up or broken or regretful it may be, your life has been woven into the eternal story of God's redemptive plan. Joy because you have been united into the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Joy because everything you need you have already in him. Joy because the message of the gospel has brought us into a family 
where we are neither rejected nor looked down upon as lacking something. And all of this, says John, is possible because what God set about doing before time began found its culmination in your joy being complete in him. That, according to John, is why Jesus the Christ came in the flesh and suffered and died and rose again. Why did he actually have to suffer? The Gnostics couldn't possibly fathom that. And what John is saying is all of it had to take place for your joy. And ironically, this is the very reason why the Gnostics had to try to find their joy in spiritual arrogance and sensual sexual pleasures. They had to find it there. Because by denying the deity of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus, they had missed out on the joy that could only be found through knowing him. They looked at the gift of Jesus and said, no thanks. We appreciate the model for living. We appreciate the fact that there's a spiritual element happening, but I have to make my own joy. And so as we prepare to launch into this book, a book that will challenge our presumptions at every turn, challenge our understanding of grace, our understanding of our own sin, our understanding of our own need for a Savior and the fullness of who Jesus Christ is, as we prepare to launch into this book, be assured, brother and sister, that if you are in Christ today, you are lacking nothing. And in the eyes of other people, you may be a spiritual infant, or you may be spiritually elderly, but you are lacking nothing. You need no additional holy book or spiritual experience, no new gifts or visions, no extra earthly comforts or indulgences. In Christ, you have fellowship with God the Father and perfect unbroken communion with him through the Spirit, and nothing but nothing can take that away. So do not give in to the voice of worldly temptations or spiritual mystics or religious legalists who would have you believe that your experiences, your insight, or your devotion are what define your worth and your happiness. Heed the words of John and find in the simple original gospel the treasure trove of assurance that in Christ you have all that you need. Be encouraged that this is where we're headed. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, for the gift of assurance through your word. God, I thank you that the assurance of our identity, of our glory and our worth, of our joy in this life and the next is not dependent on our own ability to perform, nor is it dependent on our own histories, on our own experiences, on our own failures or shortcomings, on our current struggles or our future sins, that your love for us does not rise and fall with our behavior, but that rather like a perfect father in a way that we can barely even try to comprehend, 
you love us the way that you love your own son. That the invitation you have given through the gospel of grace is that those who would find themselves in Christ find themselves completely forgiven, completely accepted, and given everything they need for their joy to be complete in you. And so God, to the extent that we don't trust that, don't believe that, or feel inferior in that, would you convince us of the truth of what your word states? Would our confidence and our assurance not rise and fall with our own feelings, but rather with what you have declared to be true? And we thank you, God, that we can rest in your goodness and your care and your compassion for us, that you understand the experience of humanity, and at the same exact time are so great and so powerful that you have the ability to intervene, to save, to adopt, and to glorify. And I pray, God, that you would do that work in our own hearts, the work of convincing and the work of convicting today. And it's in Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen.